0: Wow, what a glorious song worship service that was. I've, uh, I've told people at 63 years old that when I'm 70, so seven years from now, I'm going to begin thinking about what I'm gonna do in the second half of life. And so that's my plan, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men. So I plan on being here for seven years and then start determining how much time after that. So if you're anxiously awaiting that, then hold your breath for seven years and I'll let you know if you're f- fretting that, then my plan is not that it's seven years. Where I'm going with that is this. To have this seat up here on the platform during a song service with stereo orchestra all around me, you all would like to have that seat. <laughs> so I'm going to need um, Brother Saylor to have a Pastor Emeritus Chair, right up here uh, for the next um, 40 years or so, that, that last song, the strings were simply heavenly. Praise the Lord. As well, everybody was, but I had those right in my ear. I just am taken aback by it. We continue in our verse-by-verse study. Finally, in the book of Hebrews, <laughs> it's been forever. The last time I was going to preach in the book of Hebrews, Brother Simons gave a, a, an appeal for working uh, in extended care and, and all with children, and I switched horses right in midstream and uh, went to a message in Nehemiah, and I've not been back since. So we're in Hebrews chapter 9, the book of Hebrews chapter 9, if you'd make your way there. And as you know, the book of Hebrews presents the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is superior to anyone, to anything, and the first few chapters, in fact, it continues to describe that, that he's the King of kings, Lord of lords. He is our eternal high priest. And today we're studying Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, a message that I've titled, Out with the Old and In with the New. And these 14 verses give us a, a very good, uh, vivid detail of what that uh, has, uh, has to do with. Um, and it's very much along the, the same line of thinking as the rest of the book, namely, the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Then verily, or of a truth, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, and an earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first in which was the lampstand, that is the first part of the tabernacle, and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, that is the Holy of Holies, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the covenant. Overlaid round about with gold, in which was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubim of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. That is, can't really give you any more detail than that. Those items have been missing for hundreds of years. We know about them because they, now I'm I'm giving you the filler in between verses 5 and 6. We know about them through the writings of Moses and, uh, and, and the history of the sacrificial system, but those items were long gone, probably taken at least the majority of them in the Babylonian captivity in about 600 BC. So, the writer of Hebrews says, can't give you any more firsthand detail than that because those items are not available to inspect. Verse 6. Now, when these things were thus prepared, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Spirit thus signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. In other words, it didn't do the work, not completely, which stood only in foods and drinks and various washings and carnal ordinances, imposed on them until the time of Reformation. But Christ, being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by blood of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats, and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You'll remember that the physical and the heavenly tabernacles were first mentioned early in chapter 8, many weeks ago, when we studied that. This passage then gives more detailed, a more detailed picture of that. A number of points, if you're taking notes two primary ones. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 10 the qualities of the old, the qualities of the old tabernacle, the old sacrificial system, the old uh, way of approaching God. And even though the book of Hebrews presents Christ as superior, and it does to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron, to the Old Testament priesthood, and to the tabernacle itself, it does not mean That these other people or entities were of little or no value. On the contrary, in fact, uh, they were ordained of God and used of God for a particular purpose all of those years, all of those centuries. In fact, Romans 7 and verse 12 makes it clear when it says, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment is uh, good, um, uh, holy and just, and good. So it's clear that God established it, and he established it for a reason. I like what the commentator Donald Guthrie says about this. He says, in case any of the readers um, should think that the writer was underestimating the old, he now outlines some of the glories of the old tabernacle. He is impressed by the orderliness of the arrangements within the Levitical cultus, or the Levitical system, the the Levitical religion, if you will, and aims to present this in order to demonstrate the greater glory of the new. In other words, all of this other thing, all these other things that were going on, these personalities, uh, these entities, the tabernacle, Tabernacle itself, the sacrificial system itself, were, were glorious, they were holy, they were just, they were good. but let me show you Christ in contrast to them juxtaposed up against them, and you will see that he is far grander, far greater, more glorious than they could ever be and that 's the theme of the book of Hebrews, and it zeros in on the, uh, fo- the focuses of the tabernacle in this particular chapter. so Hebrews presents. Christ is better. Three points on the qualities of the old, the old tabernacle, the old sacrificial system. First of all, we see in verses 1 through 5 the old place of meeting, that is where they actually met. And I like how commentator, Bible commentator Robert uh, Gromacki summarized these beginning verses, these first five verses. He says, the first covenant was inseparably joined to the Levitical sacrificial system, that is, the ordinances of divine service, and this text talks about that, which had to function in the appointed place, namely the worldly or the earthly sanctuary. There was actually a place, a location uh, in the wilderness. They carried the tabernacle around, and then ultimately it was in the temple when it was constructed in Jerusalem. But there was an old place of meeting where God's presence dwelt Throughout the Old Testament times, um, and it consisted really of three different structures. Very quickly, where what was that old place of meeting? Well. First of all, uh, it began with the tabernacle in the wilderness. Exodus chapter 25, verses 1 through 9, tells us that the original meeting place where God's glory filled the tabernacle while they were in the wilderness. And they followed it, um, and uh, it was the tent of meeting, the place of meeting where God met with his people. Stephen Olford, uh, the the late great uh, that I knew uh, and was an acquaintance with, described the tabernacle as God's appearance Um, He said God's appearance to man in grace. God didn't have to do that, but he wanted his presence to be manifest, and it was in the temple, and it was man's approach to God in faith. The tabernacle then was uh, filled with shadows and patterns and figures, but not the actual substance. There was the glory of God, but it was not, it wasn't a tangible, it was tangible in the sense that you could see it, uh, the, the pillar of fire and the, and the cloud and all, but it wasn't that you could relate to that in a personal way. So the tabernacle in the wilderness was the first place, the old place of meeting. And then we see Solomon's pre-exile or exilic temple, that is before they went into exile in 1 Chronicles chapter 8. You'll remember that David was the king following Saul, and that God had given him specifics on how to build the temple, the permanent dwelling place, but because of David's sin in numbering the people, he was not allowed to do that, but his son Solomon, in fact, was the one who constructed that, and he wanted to to build a permanent temple. Second Samuel 7, God disallowed him, but it fell to his son. And so, the temple was constructed then under Solomon. And then, of course, they went into captivity. And we see then in Ezra, the book of Ezra, Zerubbabel's post-exilic temple, that is, after they came back from exile, the temple had been wrecked. It had been ruined. The sacrificial system was stopped. And so, in, in and through the ministry of Zerubbabel, Nehemiah, and Esther, they restored the temple back to its usefulness. Now, the the, the, the concept of, of the tabernacle or the temple in Scripture in the Old Testament had five different primary names. It was called the sanctuary in Exodus 25. That is the abode of the holy. And, and that's what sanctus means. Folks, this is not a sanctuary. You are a sanctuary if you're a believer. I'm a sanctuary because the Holy One dwells within us by His Spirit, amen? This is an auditorium. This is a gathering place of those who are sanctified or who have been set apart for his service. So, the sanctuary. It's also called the tabernacle or the dwelling place or presence of God. It's called the tent, indicating and uh, being indicative of its uh, uh, it being a temporary location here and there, and it was movable. It's called the tabernacle of the congregation where God met with his people in the Old Testament, and it's called the tabernacle of testimony because it, it was the storage place of the Ten Commandments, of the law, uh, of uh, Aaron's rod that which bud, and that sort of thing. So, it gave that physical, visible testimony uh, of that. And so, the tabernacle stood, uh, functioned, tabernacle and temple, stood for nearly 500 years uh, in the wilderness. The 12 tribes... uh, carried that around uh, during that time, and you'll remember that uh, uh, God's presence was in the form of a cloud by day and a column of fire by night. And then it goes on to describe the various furnishings here of this tabernacle. Uh, we won't look at it here uh, because it's not a complete list. But uh, you'll remember um, in a number of Lord's Supper messages between 2005 and 2007. Uh, you can go back and and look at it uh, online or, or check out the uh, the. recordings. I believe we have them for those. Uh, But I dealt with each piece of the furniture in the tabernacle in detail. Of course, it was the brazen altar, uh, the brazen or bronze laver, uh, the the golden candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and then inside of the Holy of Holies, the veil of separation, the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat. And this text alludes to it. So that was the old place of meeting. Now, secondly, in verses 6 and 7, we see the old pattern of ministry. How did ministry take place? Well, these two verses, pretty self-explanatory relative to what took place. Notice in verses six and seven, these things, when these things were prepared, the priests went always into the first heaven, that is on the the inner court, uh, is the court of the Gentiles, and then the first, and then there was behind the veil, they went into the first, accomplishing the service of God, but into the second, that is into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest went once a year with blood for himself and for the people. They daily lit the lamps. They burned the incense. They changed the bread every week. And then on the day of atonement, the high priest went in um, uh, once a year. Now I want you to notice something in verse 7. Notice in verse 7, um, it says, but into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood. In other words, he had blood. He had the blood of the sacrificial animal with him, uh, which he offered for himself and for, what's the word that you have in your translation? The what? Errors. Do you have errors? What other word do you have? Unintentional sins. That's exact. that's a good, what is that translation, Brother Westcott? ESV, uh, a lot of people are high on that translation right now, and I like it as well, the English Standard Version. Uh, But it's unintentional. It's the word for without knowledge. That is, you do something not in a premeditated state. And that is a, a very serious phrase right here. Folks, because there was not any offering which was made for presumptuous or intentional sin. Have you ever sinned like that? Have you ever sinned in a way that you knew ahead of time that you were going to sin and you went ahead and sinned? Anybody identify with me in that? No offering in the Old Testament sacrificial system on the Day of Atonement for that type of sin. Oh my, does that, when I, uh, when I studied that and came to understand that, first thing that came to my mind is, God, I need mercy. I need mercy. I have done that. You have done that. Amen, haven't you? Can you identify with that? And yet, in the Old Testament economy there wasn't any offering for that which of course drove the people it was intended to drive the people to mercy the mercy of God alone only Lord only you can can take care of this because you don't offer any other way I must turn to you man cannot accomplish this this uh, debt and so that pattern of ministry was established and then we see the prophetic meaning of that of the old in verses eight through ten. The prophetic meaning um, is that it was picturing the work of the Lord Jesus. You see that in verses eight, nine, and ten. The Holy Spirit signified here; He gave us a signal that the way into the holiest was not made manifest while the first was still standing. It was just a figure. It was a type. It was a picture. It reminded them year by year by year that one man one dime a year could go into the holiest, right into the presence of God for the people, but the the people themselves individually. No matter how committed they were, there was a barrier there until God himself took down that barrier, fulfilled that debt, paid the penalty uh, that man owed, you know. That's why John the Baptist he must have had understanding in that when he saw Jesus and he said in John 1:29, "Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world." Well, what was the meaning then? What was the meaning? That prophetic meaning. What was that message? that the tabernacle, that the temple was proclaiming year after year, century after century. It was proclaiming no perpetual access to God. Verse 8, you you can't get there. The atonement didn't cleanse. Folks, the reason is, is because the atonement did not cleanse from sin. I don't have anything, and maybe I do. It didn't, it did not cleanse from sin, it covered sin. So, God could not see it or chose not to see it or looked. Uh, uh, he passed over it when the, when the Passover was made, when the, when the atonement was made, when the offering was made by faith, of course, but that is not what happened with Christ. He eradicated that. He took that. He took it upon himself so that when God now looks at you as the judge, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Amen? that is amazing grace which he has shown toward those who believe wow what a message we have to tell to the nations which will turn their hearts to the right and to the right way to the right path in following the living lord so no perpetual access they had to face that year in year out and also no perfect acceptance before God and from God. The conscience, notice in verses 9 and 10, as pertaining to the conscience there at the end, it it didn't make him perfect. It did not make him complete until the time of reformation or the time when God would straighten it all out permanently and, and completely. And really, it begs the question that if none of the sacrificial system was adequate, that is, it didn't do it, then why did God install it? To drive every sinner to him for mercy and mercy alone. In other words, even the very best, if I keep this law and I keep what Moses wrote in the book of Exodus about the tabernacle and in the book of Leviticus about all of the offerings, if I were to keep it perfectly squeaky clean, my heart still condemns me. My conscience still accuses me that I have sinned and maybe even sin volitionally and intentionally. So what hope do I have? The only hope that I have is God be merciful to me, the chief sinner. And he answers that prayer, amen? He answered that for you when you turn to him in faith. So no acceptance, no complete acceptance from God except for when he came as man and paid that price. And then we see in verses 11 through 14, the qualities of the new. We saw the qualities of the old, the various ways it functioned, and now the qualities of the new. I love what it says in verse 11. Notice in verse 11, it, it lays all this out. It's almost as if verse 11a, the first part, is the pivot for all of the book of Hebrews, because all of these chapters leading up to chapter 9 and verse 11 uh, talks about uh, that you had, you had angels, Christ is better. You had Moses, he was inadequate. You had Joshua, inadequate. You had Aaron, you had the Old Testament priesthood. You had the tabernacle. All of it, can't, none of it can do the job. But Christ, now let me show you, let me put on display for you and for all the world to see that there is one and only one. Who got the job done? Amen. But Christ being come, he transitioned to the only one who was utterly sufficient. And you know, the Book of Ephesians, chapter two, verses one through seven, uh, describes summarizes this dynamic. Look at this dynamic, and you, you Ephesians, and by and by extension, those in the local church today, who were dead. In trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the prince of this, uh, to the the prince of, um, uh, I've lost my place, prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation, our lifestyle. All of us were like that at one point in the past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, folks. Last night, uh, uh, Kathy and I entertained a number of the young single adults, and I said to them, uh, uh, I'm three times the age of some of them, and I said, back then, when I was your age, I looked for opportunities to sin. I went out of my way to, to, to practice debauchery. I mean, I put it down on the calendar, you know? I, I, I wonder, I'm not proud of that. I'm just simply saying that this is me. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I went out of my way Seeking to desire, fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and I was by nature a child of wrath, even as others. I wasn't the only one in that boat. Amen. You ever a child of wrath? Did you ever go out of your way to to desire to fulfill the lust of the flesh? Certainly, you did. Everyone did. Everyone who who was a two year old who would say, "That's mine." You ever had a two-year-old say, that's mine. Ever had a two-year-old steal and hide? That's the conscience accusing. And every one of us, arguably, did that. That's what this text is describing. But God, (laughs) who is rich in mercy for his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, He's quickened us together. He's breathed life into us with Christ. By grace you're saved. And he's raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come. Why did he do this? God, why did you do this? So that he might be bragged on. Because our God is a jealous God. And, And he desires and demands and delights in worship alone. Amen? And so for all the ages to come he might put on display his exceeding kindness toward us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us uh, romans 5 8. his exceeding grace in his kindness toward us through christ jesus that summarizes if you will the first part of verse 11 but christ being come now notice the new place of meeting in verse 11. The new place of meeting with the qualities of the, new. the very same, same points as the first one, the new place of meeting, the new pattern, the new prophetic meaning. the new place of meeting. Notice it's not a building, but it's a person. And we come into God's presence, not in the tabernacle slash temple of the Old Testament, but in and through Christ. Notice in verse 11, pay attention to this one. Hold, hold on, hold on to your hat. that You're going to have a glory fit. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not that it was talking about himself, his body. That word, more perfect tabernacle or dwelling place, talking about when he came in the flesh, is the very same root that he used when he was on the cross, it is finished. The very same word, very same theological concept. <clears throat> Husbands, you know how it, it's easier to ask forgiveness and to ask permission? In this case, I asked permission. Kathy and I, been, we've been married a little over three years. And after we've been married a year, We bought our final, my final house. I don't don't know what she's doing afterwards, but my next move's heaven. (laughs) So it's my final house. And I got us into the house, and it's a nice house, nicest house I've ever lived in. And she started supplying uh, all the goods. She had a household, I had a household. Our households were old and used in the old meeting place. (laughs) See, and now we've got to have a new meeting place. So we're buying and buying everything new. She is. And after, oh, four months, I guess, as she's decorating the, the house with the furniture and pictures and this and that, I said, you about done? <laughs> and she looked at me quizzically. I said, "Are you, you're, just about, you're just about finished. You're just about complete with the decorating? And I was just asking a normal question. Um, I'm a number three on the enneagram. Get her done. Okay, are we done? And she looked at me and said, "Well, no, Vic. We're never done." <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. <laughs> I said, "Well, some at one point, some point in, in time, the house will be overflowing with pictures. Well, we'll just change them out. <laughs> we're never done." I don't know what this still means to this day, (laughs) and I'm very uncomfortable with it. (laughs) I'm thankful that our text says, but Christ says it's done, complete. End of discussion, but not end of story, because we have a story to tell. Uh, The new place of meeting. Relative to spiritually, no matter what my physical conditions are, with Kathy still decorating, relative to spiritually, it is complete. It is done. And it cannot be improved upon or changed out or exchanged with anything. Thank the Lord. And then we see in verse 12, the new pattern of ministry. Verse 12, neither, it's not by the blood of. Uh, goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place. And what did he do? He obtained eternal redemption for us. That's the pattern of ministry. The old didn't take care of it. For the payment of sin, it required something new, something greater, something better, the shed blood of Christ. And folks, when it talks about uh, the blood of Christ— In Scripture, it's talking about uh, the same uh, uh, concept of blood in any of the sacrificial days. uh, um, That is, without the shedding of blood, there isn't any remission of sin because blood is indicative of death. He had to die. And so he came and he shed his blood, i.e., he died a torturous death, a sacrificial death, so that we would not be judged. It was that once and for all ministry of blood sacrifice. Which he offered. Now, I tell you, verses 11 and 12 are simply, they're just pregnant with theological truth. It is Christ who came. He is the high priest. He went into the Holy of Holies, he himself, and he offered his own blood, which is greater and better and perfect, and makes all who are in him complete before the throne of God. Praise the Lord. And he did it uh, one time. And that redemption is eternal. I don't know what you do uh, if you hold to losing your salvation with all the everlastings and eternals and forever that you see in Scripture and complete. uh, uh, And and uh, He's the fullness of the Godhead bodily, uh, Colossians um, um, 2, 9. And we are complete in him. It's done. It's over. The decorating is finished because there's nothing else that can be added to what he has done. And then we see in verses thirteen and fourteen the new prophetic ministry. Verses thirteen and fourteen, for and this is the this is the message. Here is the, the word. If all of that could take care of it, how much more then is what the God man offered going to be sufficient? Well, of course, the answer is it's rhetorical. The answer is it's it's infinitely more sufficient. In the old, it was foretelling the work of Christ. In the new, it's forthtelling, proclaiming the message of the cross of Christ, life in him. Well, what is the, the new prophetic meaning? Since God is spirit, and since blood is required for the payment of sin by an actual physical sacrifice— it's not fictitious blood. It's not, it's not uh, figurative blood. It's actual blood was required. But calves and, and goats couldn't do the ultimate job. Therefore, God himself came clothed in flesh, and he was offered. Now, I want to give you a point here. I don't know where I got this. Maybe, maybe out of my own head. Maybe I read it. But notice, because I actually prepared this weeks ago. Notice, it says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, verse 14, who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Bulls and goats and calves were ignorant. They were being led to the slaughter. He went knowingly. He went volitionally, intentionally to pay the sin debt of those who are dead in trespasses and sins, who rebel against God, who who have sinned in every way imaginable, namely you and me. And he did so because he wanted to do that. He offered himself. Well, I'm thankful beyond description that I've experienced out with the old and in with the new and maybe maybe you can maybe you can identify with this i don't know that i had this would have had the self discipline under the old economy of the sacrificial system in the tabernacle or temple to have year in year out dealt with the minutia of the sacrifice i am i am not religious i've never been religious i don't like religion at all of keeping crossing t's and dotting i's I love freedom. And he who the sun sets free, say it with me, is free indeed. <laughs> I mean, you're free for real. I got saved. I didn't cry. A lot of you did. That's fine, because you were so relieved. When I got saved, I laughed. I chuckled. I was, I was uh, Giddish. I was just tickled by virtue of being set free that I didn't even know that I should expect that. I didn't even have any knowledge that he who the Son sets free is free did. All I understood uh, was sin's forgiven, home in heaven. I didn't know that joy overflowing came with the package. That wasn't told me that I know of. But that's exactly what he brings to those who have been purged, who have been cleansed from the, the conscience of dead works and now you don't have to serve him. What? You get to serve him (laughs) because you're motivated to. You have a new nature. One created in true uh, and godliness and true wholeness, I believe it says in, in Ephesians. In other words, his life is in you. Folks, we have a message. We have a message to tell this world that They can be out with the old, religion, uh, atheism, dead works, futility, not being able to have intimacy with the Lord, and the new can come in through faith in Christ. Wow, wow. He is high and lifted up in our hearts because of coming in by faith, saving us, making us his own. Share that message with a lost and dying world. Lord, I am...